Hey, Keanu. Welcome to Psyche Podcast. I'm so excited that we get to connect and to have this conversation together. Yeah, thanks for having me today. This is going to be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So I know the first thing that I wanted to ask you, and we actually have talked about it offline, but I kind of wanted you to maybe talk about it for the audience. Can you tell us the story around your name? Uh, Yeah. Because I think it's great. So I was born in 2001, and The Matrix had just come out. So the name Keanu Reeves was kind of just on everyone's name. And so it just kind of stuck. And here I am today now, named Keanu. And he continued to be an internet meme, which is kind of funny. You know, like there's like the E3 where he shouts out in the crowd, you're beautiful after someone tries to tell him that he's beautiful. You know, I was watching like a TV show and Keanu Reeves popped up as like dating someone's mom or something. Oh my God. Vampire. Like, I don't know. But just like, it, it's funny because the name pops back up in association with the exact person that I kind of like got the name from. Dude, that's amazing. I've actually wondered if if you had seen some of the memes out there or just some of the stories of him being like this incredible human, like giving away all this money and buying motorcycles for like the crew. Do yeah. you think any of that is actually true? I, I don't I, know. I have no clue. I just find the phenomenon fascinating. Like even if it's all fake, the like collective imagination about it is like interesting. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. So I, I, I if you don't mind, just like growing up, like elementary, middle, high school, would 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 people kind of see this as a conversation starter for you? Like having the name, a little the name piano? Some people like wouldn't get it at all like they wouldn't know how to pronounce the name or know where it was from and so like it was kind of split like either people knew and they knew like the movies and stuff or they okay. would like butcher the name's pronunciation like i had like a substitute teacher in middle school once that would like call me i think like canoe or kinu or something oh my I gosh just, I'd, sometimes i just give up correcting people because it was just so constant it, it's really binary it's kind of funny okay yeah I, I yeah i could see it being something that draws people and then something that's like polarizing yeah so, so Keanu, you know, one of the things that I like to do kind of at the start of like every episode, if, if the guest is like comfortable with this is just to kind of go back a little bit and kind of explore, you know, some of the religious or philosophical, sometimes kind of spiritual influences mm-hmm. and values that kind of shape them as a person and that kind of set them on this trajectory um, that's kind of led them to where they are now. That's the kind of therapist in me. I, I like to know yeah. where people come from. I'm curious if you could talk about that, if you feel comfortable with that question. Yeah, I do feel comfortable with this question. I've thought about this a good bit in the past few months. Okay. Um, So I'm from Southern Mississippi, which is in the Bible Belt. But my dad was from, he was like a a military kid. So he moved around. He lived in like Turkey and Germany on like Air Force bases. His parents were very religious. Like to this day, they run a church in like New Hampshire, I think. But he wasn't into the vibe, I guess. And so, like, he kind of came away just, I think, blanket atheist and, like, kind of, like, just not into it as all, like, at all. But then when I was in elementary school, I had, like, heard kids on the bus, like, talking about God and the devil and stuff. So one day I came home and I was like, Mom, Dad, what the heck are they talking about? And they were, like, they gave these simple kind of answers. They were like, I guess if the devil's real, then God's real. I don't know. Like, they didn't know what to tell me, really. So my mom was like, okay, we have a cousin in the family who's actually a pastor. So let's take the kids to like this church or whatever. So I went to like a Methodist church, like in like third grade for like a couple months, I think. And that was like most of my church experience about like just then. Um, she actually wasn't very religious herself either. Like I remember one time in the car, she told me that she didn't think like Jesus was real or something, you know. Knowing the Nicene Creed now, I'm like, huh, that's <laughs> heterodox, right? Like, you know, it's not standard. So I had a very non-standard kind of uh 
background in terms of my parents' religiosity while okay. still growing up in Mississippi. So I actually didn't realize that people were like really into it and like believe the stories. I, I thought church was like someone talking about like the three little pigs, like they're just like stories. Yeah. I didn't realize until I was like 16 and I was working at a Chick-fil-A. And I was oh, like man. there that like people like really, really, really believe the stuff. So I somehow was unaware of like the extent to like religious like ideas like influence people and stuff because I just spent a lot of time like I don't know trying to do one school uh you know no, I, was, I guess I was kind of like laser focused on that I was either like playing video games or trying to do one school okay like it wasn't until I started working and like talking to people um, more about like their religious beliefs and stuff that I got like more of a sense of what was going on around me I was kind of isolated from a lot of it for a while um and then, so that's the religious kind of influence. Okay. Now there's the other, it's the other side, right? The philosophical influences. So I spent a lot of time on YouTube, you know, now I'm kind of on Twitter, but most of my time on the internet when I was in like middle school and high school was actually just on YouTube, kind of just watching videos. Um, and I somehow slipped into like the Jordan Peterson zone. Okay. But at first I was just listening to his philosophy lecture type stuff where he was like talking about Nietzsche and Young. I didn't. I didn't get to the other stuff about like male self-help type things. I didn't see any of that for a long time. Sure. Um, I didn't know what he was talking about at first. So I like dug into some of the texts and stuff. Um, and then later as I, I like went deeper and deeper and kind of like slipped into Deleuze, which I had a teacher who recommended this. I'll come back to this part of the story later. Sure. But as I kind of slipped into Deleuze, I, at the same time, I had started to notice more of the, what is now what a lot of people think of as like kind of problematic taste, problematic sides. And I was like, Hmm. I like this Deleuze stuff better. <laughs> I'm gonna stick with this. I'm gonna leave that. I'm gonna leave that behind. I stop paying attention to that completely. And like every so often, I see like either podcasters or other people on the internet kind of mention him. I'm like, ah, I remember that. I remember that from a long time ago. I know what they're talking about. Um, so that's one side of the story. I had a teacher in high school who knew about Jordan Peterson and like saw that I was like looking at him and stuff. He was like, what are you doing? <laughs> it's like you gotta try something else. So you're like. He threw like Victor Frankl at me. He threw Simone de Beauvoir's Ethics of Beauty. And in the end, he was like, you got to read Difference or Repetition. And I did, I like looked at it. I opened it. I was like, there's some Kierkegaard in the introduction or preface or something. And I just didn't touch it for like another year or two. Didn't look at it until I was in college. And until after, yeah. So that teacher was a government teacher. Like he taught us like about law, about like history and stuff. Um, and he also ran this extracurricular. Um, like youth legislator. So a bunch of kids would basically write bills, kind of like mock laws. And then you'd go to a conference and you discuss them in small committees that kind of like replicated the actual lawmaking process. Um, and if your bill made it through the committee, it would go to either the House or the Senate, and then you'd go sit in a collective rep like simulation of that process. And you just kind of go through the motions. Um, and so I eventually, after I was working, I was able to buy a car and I was able to like go to extracurriculars with more freedom. And so with some of that freedom, I joined that extracurricular and I went through that process with him uh, and you know the other students that were like part of it. And I hadn't like, at this point, I think the philosophy stuff that I was looking at was influencing my viewpoints, but I didn't really know like concepts or genealogies or anything. It just kind of like was reshaping how I was thinking about things. And I was being taught like about like law and constitution, like histories, like the precedent that would like kind of carry on across decades and stuff. Um, and I was supposed to be like writing my own kind of laws like this. So my bill that I wrote was about like voter ID and like trying to get rid of it because there's a way that IDs can kind of be used, uh, 
an institutional racism kind of, right? Like some people don't have access to them as easily and then they can't vote. And I don't know, like trying to like get that idea across to other students was difficult because everyone kept bringing up the idea of like voter fraud. And I, like, even though I like found what was supposed to be empirical evidence that says there is no voter fraud relative to this, it like kept popping up, kept popping up. So that bill actually didn't pass. My bill failed, like it just kind of fell apart. But I try, I paid attention to everything else everyone else is doing. I like tried to like jump in those discussions, get in those debates. And I had a pretty good time in the end because of that. And I feel like it's interesting that like I was exposed to philosophy in the context of like thinking about like legal history and things like this. Um, and so, you know, I, after moving on from like Jordan Peterson on the internet, I kind of moved towards Zizek. Like before I completely jumped onto the Deleuze train, I actually spent some time listening to like a lot of Zizek. And so that's how I got more familiar with like Lacan and the psychoanalysis stuff at first. But of course, at that stage, I didn't really know what was fully going on with the psychoanalysis. Just like, this, this just sounds interesting. But as a result, when I came to college and I was taking a humanities class, um, when I was exposed to Fanon and him talking about like Hegel and stuff, I was like, sounds kind of like the Zizek. So I tried to write a paper like with that. And I got feedback from a professor who was like, okay, I used to teach at UChicago. Uh, kids have come to me plenty of times like Con Hegel. This looks interesting, but you're missing a few things, right? Um, she was like, you're not talking about gender at all. And then also you should like look at more value bar. So like a lot of the French philosophy stuff that I'm really into today, I feel like was kind of planted in that kind of like, like not that moment, but that that first class that I took in the anthropology department at, my, at MIT during my undergrad. So like, it that's kind of where the influences kind of like jump off. Like it started off as kind of just like internet stuff. And then a teacher kind of sort of intervened and I got closer into the world that he was in. And then I kind of kept those ideas with me and was still listening to random stuff on the internet. And then took a class where I could like play with those ideas and someone else kind of evaluated what I was look, what I was doing and they pointed out like weak spots. And then I've kind of just been iterating based off of that. Like I've taken a few more classes in that department, written a few more papers, gotten more feedback, and it's kind of like a back and forth with that. And so I finished my concentration for my degree. It's like a subset of it you have to do in humanities at MIT. I did that in the anthropology department with more professors, like that first professor. Um, and once I'd finished that, I had learned about like biopolitics and written about Foucault and stuff like that, and read about like uh, how the secular, the notion of the secular, um, oftentimes is sort of like a has like a Christian shadow cast on it, right? And you can see how it conflicts with maybe like Muslim rights and things like this, and I end up with like conflicts with like uh, whether or not scars can be worn somewhere in like France or something, right? Things like this. Um, yeah, I kind of rambled there a little bit didn't really keep track no of no 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 that's fine oh that's great that that's how this podcast is it's like ramblings and then i feel like it's my job to try to like put the pieces together but i mean there's so much that i want to ask you about what you shared it's first of all just thank you for kind of being vulnerable and sharing a part of your story that's like really important to me i, I think one of the questions i want to ask you is if we can go back a little bit during your time in mississippi i mean yeah. how has how has something like race yeah been been a factor in in your life not not just personally but maybe even in some of your like musings and some of your thinking about some of this stuff so with regards to mississippi i'm actually mixed race so my father is 
white, my mom is black and Cherokee. And so neither, I mean, just I'm going through the personal first before I jump to the more, I guess, like world historical kind of analysis. But like, I felt like the white group didn't view me as part of the white group and the black group didn't quite view me as part of the black group. So I was in this like eerie non-racial zone. I don't know how to describe it, but um, it would like context switch too. like in different situations that I'd be viewed more one way or another. I feel like academics actually kind of shifted me more towards being viewed as more white of sorts. Um, like if you, if you, look at different classes. So I guess I'm going to get more general now. If you look at this, the education system and you look at like the distribution of literal like classrooms, right? The classrooms that are the more like advanced classes, the more AP classes or whatever, these kinds of things where they're like, they're supposed to be like more advanced, like the ratio of like white to black kids changes. I don't, I've never looked at like actual data on this. This is just kind of like something that I kind of think I've seen. Um, so I feel like that kind of exists, which is a weird effect where it's like academic rigor somehow plays in. I, I don't know. Yeah, no, totally. Like, I mean, you're saying from like your anecdotal experience that it's, it's, it's kind of felt that way. I, I'm, I'm wondering, and I told, I mean, my own experience, I'm, I'm half white, half Puerto Rican, but mm -hmm. I know I look completely white. You know, some people have said I have like white, I'm, I'm, I'm a white passing Latino. And some of the research I've done about some of this stuff and in, in kind of my own experience, um, there's this category called a hyphenated Hispanic or mm -hmm. hyphenated Latino where we're kind of stuck in between. And so I don't know if that kind of is language mm -hmm. that would resonate with you in terms of being kind of mixed race. Yeah. The thing is, is like I get interpreted as almost everything. I've had people that think I'm okay. a Muslim person from you know Middle East or something. Other people think that I'm maybe Hispanic. Um, some people think I'm like East Asian. Like I, it's, I get put all over the map. It's actually quite bizarre. Um, like in, in the anthropology classes that I talked about, one of the things we read about was um, how in Britain, like where like the place people are from is kind of associated with a sort of quasi-racial identity, like the different districts and stuff. And so like people don't like talking about that in polite society or something, right? It's like this ability to like locate where you think people are from has such like a racial sort of colonial like undergirding to it or something. Yeah, no, no, totally. I, I wonder even like in your home growing up, were there tensions like what were your parents kind of unified in like kind of the cultural formation or, or were there various different influences that kind of impacted that? Unified in the cultural formation. I mean, I guess if the religion is symptomatic of anything, they were not really like fully in, like integrated into it all. Um, I mean, my dad, like, Definitely, I don't think he was as integrated into the social network, or whatever, because he had come to the city that I'm like that I grew up in when he was like 18 or 19. Or okay, what what city was that? We're like Gulfport, Gulfport, Mississippi. Oh, okay, yeah, on the Gulf Coast. Um, he'd only been there for like the last few years before like I came into existence. Um, so I don't know. He like was close to a few people, and actually, my mom was his best friend's sister. Oh, okay. But I don't, I don't know how far like his roots went and extended out. And then my mom, uh, again, wasn't really part of like a religious community or anything. Um, she was part, she actually is a school teacher. So she has like that network, I guess. Um, but aside from like the professionalism kind of associated with that, I don't, I don't really think they're really too integrated into the social formations much. Uh, 
Did, but did were you asking that question specifically with regards to like the racial sort of? Yeah, I, I was like, I, I didn't know yeah. if there were any like any tensions around like the both sides of you from 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 both of your parents. If if you got different influences or mixed messages about all of that complicated stuff growing up. Well, I guess because my dad grew up on military bases, mm. maybe that has something to do with like what got inscribed in him as a sort of influence. Like, not, yeah, hmm. I felt like I felt like there actually wasn't that much racial tension, if if any at all, which is interesting. Yeah, I don't think he really viewed things through racism much or like interpreted it. Like, actually, what's interesting about my family kind of extended is I think like my mom was raised by a white man, actually. Um, and then also my her brother married, I think, um, like an Eastern Indian woman. Right. Like so in my particular family, it seems like race does not get filtered into the, the coupling or something. I I don't know. Maybe it's like a small familial, like complex thing or something. I don't know how to describe it, but I don't think people in my immediate family really do use the like cultural racial matrix to like process things as much. Maybe in terms of again romantic pairing. Sure, sure. So okay, let let, let me go here for a second, Keanu. I, I know when I follow you on Twitter, I mean, you have all these phenomenal deep posts, and you're always sharing everything that you're reading. I mean, one of the things that I feel intimidated about is kind of like your biology side, because I've never been mm -hmm. really good <laughs> at like science or um, kind of the STEM field. It's, it's a tremendous weakness of mine, but I'm at least intrigued by it. I have a lot of clients uh, that kind of go into those fields. So they're always talking to me about it, even though I don't fully understand it. I, I know that you're at MIT. I'm, I'm curious if you could maybe talk about that. Like, how did you get into biology? Yeah. And yeah. and what was the journey like kind of getting into MIT? And, and what's what's been your experience there? Because I know it's one of the elite, you know, academic institutions in the United States. Yeah. So I hadn't thought of doing biology whatsoever until I'd stepped foot on MIT's campus. Um, okay. Before... Okay, so I actually had left that youth legislator conference thing I was talking about earlier to go visit MIT. Um, but during that visit, I kind of mostly stayed with family more. I didn't see too, too much of the campus. Um, and then I would go back later for like a campus preview weekend after I'd been admitted. And I went to an open house for the biology department. And they like talked about a, a new, like a relatively new major they had. It was joint between computer science and molecular biology. And I was like, that's intriguing. And so I became that. And that's kind of the path that I'm trying to finish still. Um, but before I had sat down in that open house, I'd spent a lot of time in robotics, um, working on just various kinds of things. I, I started off like building um, game elements robots to manipulate. And then over time, I kind of moved into like helping them build the robots a little bit. Also like working on websites for team outreach, did a little bit of editing for the kind of like business-esque side of like uh, again more community outreach stuff um and then i did like app development for like scouting other teams so we could coordinate like what our strategy would be and who we would pick but what i really really kind of got into pretty deeply was programming the robot or actually designing the way the robot would be controlled the human robot interface um, and so i kind of got interested in like the rudiments of control theory at that point um, i was working with like sensor feedback and trying to like just automate anything I could on this robot. Because when I was in 11th grade, I was the robot driver. And 
it was the first time I'd ever experienced like the kind of anxiety where I like freeze or something. I, I mean, I just threw a medical term in there, but I don't really mean that term medically. It's more just like the, people talk about like, colloquially, like the flight or flight response, really. So I was like in this big stadium supposed to control this robot and I would click the wrong button or like not click the button at the right time because I was just nervous. And I was like, what is going on? I can fail myself. This is weird. And so I spent the next year like learning a new programming language completely from scratch, learning new libraries, learning how to use new technology and stuff to, to automate this robot so that I could eliminate as much human error as possible. And so I was really into like just designing control kind of schemas and stuff at that point. And so that's kind of what I wanted to investigate in biology was like, what are the control schemas of natural systems? And it turns out that at, biology, at MIT biology, um, there's systems biology, at least in the like PhD program and stuff, the people who run that are really into systems, systems biology. So I was told by mentors and people that I've met throughout my time at MIT through different classes and time in lab and things like this, that there's someone named Uri Alon who I'd like a lot. And it's like the systems theory biology stuff that talks about how like DNA elements that are related to genes or related to expressing genes, but not, not necessarily genes themselves all the time. Um, like how those different molecules connect up to each other, how some might negate others or activate others and how like those networks wire up to then control like how often maybe a gene gets transcribed or like how things respond to each other. And it makes these big networks that are very, very complex. Um, and I, I think that stuff's awesome. And I think it might relate to the kind of Michel Serre kind of uh, Jill Chatelet stuff that inspires Deleuze and Guattari. Like that's what I wonder about. Um, but to be a bit more narrative about this again, once I got to MIT, I spent my first year just doing normal course requirements. Um, you have graduation requirements you kind of got to get through. I had to take like physics and stuff like that. Uh, you know, just chemistry and some things. Uh, and then during the summer of my first year, I joined a lab because I just wanted to like get some experience, kind of see what was going on. And this lab was like a bioinformatics lab. So it means that there's a lot of like data that I had to work with. And I was actually like on the computer, like writing code to handle these weird data files. And in processing the data, I would kind of get like analysis out and I would kind of get like an insight into maybe what was going on. Now, initially I joined this lab with the intent of doing pretty computer science heavy stuff, actually more like kind of machine learning type things, because I had, after doing the robotics stuff um, during like the summer before I actually went to MIT, I learned another programming language that was very popular for machine learning type stuff. And I played around with that and read a lot of the theoretical math behind it and tried to figure out like the calculus for it. Um, and I felt like I kind of got a grasp on it and it made enough sense. And so I wanted to try and do a project with it in this, this research kind of uh, collaboration with this lab as an undergraduate. But it turned out that the data just didn't really work out well for it, for the particular type of mathematical approach I was using. But also maybe at the time, I just didn't know enough of the ways that I could change the data or like kind of there, there are mathematical transformations you can do to make stuff more efficient. Like maybe I just didn't have enough of those like in my toolbox at the time. Not really sure. But even after that project kind of didn't resolve, you know, I liked the lab, the lab liked me. So I kind of kept working and like looking back, what I think I valued the most about my time, like researching a lab was the journal clubs. We would read like literature that was coming out in our field of like molecular biology and bioinformatics, system biology, computational biology, these kinds of things. We'd read these and discuss the data like in depth and like talk about it and think about how it could relate to the different projects people working on in the lab. And I just found that really cool to like be in part of an active, like growing literature space with people and to like 
see things grow and change and I talk about like where things are going, what's going on. Um, like I felt like I got to watch that field kind of like grow and change a little bit as I kept reading it. Like, I don't know, there are techniques that people would be very, very familiar with and you'll read a paper where they have a new technique that like, if you were somehow figured out, maybe you can do like a hundred times more proficiency or like efficiency or precision than like some other technique that you have, right? It's like, there's just a lot of cool things that keep getting pumped out. There's so much work going into this. Actually, in the, the epigenetics that I do or the type of biology I do, a lot of it was not known about until like 2012. Like I spent a lot of time working with these things called, or reading about and thinking about these things called topologically associated domains. And so they're like parts of DNA and protein like assemblages that have like different chemical modifications, but they're somehow buffered from one another so that these can do specific things or map onto specific like processes biologically. And there've been experiments like in fruit fries, fruit flies and stuff where they'll like somehow destroy molecules that handle the buffering. And then it will completely scramble the way that the system's biology kind of graphs work out. And then you get really disastrous kind of outcomes and things. And so, you know, I got into biology by trying to do computer science stuff in the world of biology. And, but then also at the same time, the control theory kind of stuff from robotics was like really inspiring me theoretically. And that's kind of what I wanted to know more about. And I feel like those two kind of things came together so that, such that I was really, really, really interested in it all. And I thought it was really cool, but it was beyond my grasp to really bring into the project and really like make manifest into like my work, I think. Like I, at this point, I feel like my experiences with biology are gonna lend a lot more to my kind of philosophical thinking than anything maybe. It was fun, it was fun for undergrad for sure. Dude, that is really fascinating. Okay, so it actually leads me into the, the second question I wanted to ask you is, how do you see biology and philosophy sort of going together? I mean, there is a way of reading Deleuze where it's kind of, there's a philosophy of biology in there. He works a lot with kind of like Whitehead and Bergson. Um, um, Isabel Stangers actually um, has a really interesting sort of speculative biology. And that's kind of what I've been interested in a lot. But there's also, you know, biopolitics, Foucault's kind of analysis of how life became a concept for the state to like administer for the population and all these things. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there's probably more one could say and think about biopolitics strictly than just what Foucault's done. You know, there have been advancements by like Mbembe, um, or I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but like necropolitics, you know, things like this. Uh, like I took a class with a professor in the anthropology department who taught anthropology of biology. In that class, we were assigned um, a, a variety of things. We learned about a bunch of stuff. Um, but what really got my attention was the way this professor kind of made sense of Foucault's engagement with life as like, okay, he, he made it tangible. Like, or, okay, this is, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and use a very tangible example, but I think it's like one of those things that's sensitive depending on different viewers' perspectives. Um, there's like, it's like the Roe v. Wade type of situation. Um, like in Southern states, in some Southern states, it's difficult to get access to, I don't know what to call it, to not you know upset different people, but something, right? And, but in Puerto Rico to this day, I think, I've read that like sterilization is very popular or like ending, terminating pregnancies is like, there's like no barrier to getting it. And so there's a situation where like some people are, or some things are designated as life and are supposed to be like, they're supposed to flourish. Whereas others are designated as like not life and they can just be destroyed. 
And so like there's, I read about this situation on a blog post that I was assigned in class where some people who have the wealth where they can't access the termination of pregnancies will actually fly to Puerto Rico to terminate pregnancies. Like there's this, is this ability where if someone is elite enough or has access to enough resources or wealth, they can get around certain laws, right? And so there's this way, yeah, I think it's like a good example. It's like that there's a certain type of life that's valued in a certain context and there's a different type of life that's not valued in another context. And so I think this is like where Rosie Braddotti's kind of notion of like Zoe's, Zoe versus Bios kind of comes in maybe. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff kind of with the new materialists and uh, the, the Deleuzean kind of feminists, um, you know, the crowd that's similar to Stengers of sorts, it seems. Um, but yeah, so biology and philosophy. I mean, that's one dimension, right? That's that's one dimension. But before I took that class, I was paying attention a lot to like the math side of Deleuze and Guattari and how that might apply to biology, especially because I'm a computational biologist or I was spending a lot of time with computational biologists thinking about those kinds of problems, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's, you know, the smooth space and strided space that they talk about in a thousand plateaus, um, which is related to like becoming, right? Like you have maybe a certain configuration of a system and then through becoming the configuration changes. But it's thought that like, you can't maybe do a process unless the becoming is kind of stabilized, right? You have like a striation, maybe like a re-solidifies and then you can make sense of something. And I don't know, I, I really like early on, I told my, told the, the person running my lab, you know, like the head mentor, I was like this, the stuff that we're looking at in system biology, to me, sounds very similar to the stuff that Leslie Guattari are talking about with like assemblages. I mean, maybe that hunch is like incorrect. It could be incorrect, but like it was kind of like the lens that I was intrigued by at the time, for sure. And yeah, so I, I, th there's this notion of like the forms of life that you kind of see. Um, and I was wondering if maybe different cell types throughout developmental biology are kind of like forms of life, or if like the way that the Uriolon system biology is arranged, if that could be thought of sort of as like assemblages and like becoming is the graph changing, you know, things like this. And then I wonder about like Riemannian kind of statistics, especially because now in biology, there are these experiments that just, they, they output so much data. And so like you'll have like a thousand, maybe 10,000 like input fields, like in a matrix full of different data values you want to do something with. And so there's been a lot of incentive over the past decade to work with more high dimensional algorithms. And, you know, the lesson about you talk about like in desiring sexuality or whatever, right? Like design production being like of in dimensions. And so uh, it, seemed, it seemed like they kind of interlaced a little bit. And then very recently, or like in the last few months, I've learned that Ruye, this, he's actually an embryologist, was supposedly quite important for Deleuze and Guattari. And they changed some of his ideas, I think. I read this one secondary like resources paper trying to like put it together. They kind of talked about some of the relations between like Rue and their thought. And so it seems like there might be, a, like if I wanted to do a close reading project, took my time, there's potentially a way of like going back to like Rue, looking at the molecular biology stuff that I'm familiar with and like trying to do like a Deleuzean embryology, right? But before I knew about Ruye, I was really interested in like Waddington's epigenetic landscape. Because in the 90s, there is this experiment that showed that you could take cells and put a specific cocktail of proteins in a dish with those cells, and they would actually de-differentiate. 
And so this biologist named Waddington in the 40s had this idea, like as cells are differentiating, they're like moved down this landscape thing. And so a lot of people in the 90s when this experiment came out kind of made this image of like, whoa, they're going back up the landscape. I don't know if that image is proper or if it's correct at all, but I think it's intriguing because Waddington, I later found out, was really influenced by Whitehead and cybernetics, which cybernetics is like the math of sort of control theory um, in a sense. Uh, and yeah, so once I found out about the Whitehead-Waddington connection, I got very, 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 very interested in Whitehead as like a kind of philosophy of biology angle. And so I, I read a few things on that and the professor in the, the from the anthropology biology class actually recommended this book to me. It was like a hundred pages. Is um, I don't remember the person's first name, but it was like Didier, no, I think it was like Didier Debase Nature's Event. And it talked a lot about like prehension to talked about different notions of subjectivity. There's like the subjectum that they kind of attribute to like Heidegger, which is like the grounded being, but then there's surjection, which is like getting launched off somewhere, which to me sounds a lot like becoming. And to me sounds a lot like what these cells are doing when like you have these proteins that bind to certain regions and like change what they are. Um, and so like, I was thinking like, what if you can make sense of the Waddington of genetic landscape in terms of a sort of like vector field, but it's like a high dimensional vector field or something. Um, like I had, I knew someone in the lab who published a paper where basically there's this one stretch of DNA and there's these two proteins that compete to bind to it. And if one gets bound, it goes like one direction, kind of an in-dimensional space. Like if you were to make a projection of this, you could see it in two dimensions. And if a different protein binds there, it goes in a different direction. So like, I imagine these sort of like maybe vectors and vector calculus. I imagine these maybe as prehensions as Whitehead would say or something, right? Like. I don't know. This is just kind of like where my speculation has been so far, I guess, with philosophy and biology. Um, and then there's another dimension. There's another thread with this, the free energy principle. So I spent a lot of time on YouTube, as I said before, and one of the YouTube videos or YouTube channels that first got me into Deleuze and made a few things made make sense to me and like made me think, oh, this clicks. I'm going to get more into this. Um, had a video on Antonio Damasio and like aspect of neuroscience. And I saw that, I think my freshman year of undergraduate. And I thought it was really cool. I, I liked it a lot. And so I got more into like reading aspect of neuroscience a little bit. And as I was on Twitter talking about it, someone mentioned, hey, you should look at Mark Solm's book, The, Inner, the Hidden Spring of Consciousness, or it's something like this. And it starts off talking about like Freud and neuroanatomy and stuff. And it's kind of interesting, but then it there's this chapter that was, called the free energy principle. And it started talking about the same stuff I had seen in robotics with like control theory and everything. It started talking about homeostasis and like feedback and things like this. And I was like, oh, wow, look at this. And it extended those kinds of rudimentary concepts that I had like had some intuition for from high school into like a theory of the organism. And it grounded it in Kant's third critique where he talks a lot about like kind of like telos and like taste and stuff. Um, I thought that was really fascinating. So I dug in more and uh, in, in the actual like, chapter, this person recounts the story. Mark Solon recounts the story of like reaching out to Friston, the neuroscientist um, who was working on this thing called the free energy principle at the time, reaching out to him and trying to figure out what was going on and working on the underlying physics. Um, I think the story goes something along the lines of that Friston worked on like a way of making sense of brain scan data and there was a lot of physics and like statistical mechanics behind trying to like probability theory 
to make sense of this stuff. And as a result of all the work, what comes out is a sort of extension of cybernetics of sorts that is very, very rooted in biology. Um, and especially like neurology. It starts off in neurology. I think there's a lot of neuroscience, like predictive processing and stuff that branches off from this. And so I was on Twitter reading a lot of stuff, getting more into it, digging through the papers, like following the citations where I could. And ended up finding about this other person named Maxwell Ramstead and read a lot of stuff that this person had published. And I found it quite interesting. Um, it started to kind of apply the free energy principle stuff, not just to biology or not, not just to like medical biology as we would sort of think of it maybe, but also to like social systems and ecosystems. And I found that really compelling. Like there was this paper I read about like niche construction, things like this. And so I, again, um, the, I thought about the cell stuff. I thought about molecular biology stuff again. Um, and I think that my engagement with the free principle in biology is definitely not over. And I have a lot of things to still think through and make sense of, but that's another dimension of biology and philosophy for sure is affective neuroscience, the free energy principle, all the stuff that um, Ramstead and Friston have been doing. Very, very fascinating. And actually during that engagement on Twitter, I bumped into someone who was like the student of Catherine Malibu um, and like is really, really in Derrida and stuff. And so just like those engagements and those interactions have also been very, very fruitful to like my thinking stuff, especially in regards to like the range of principle stuff um, because there's a scholar who works on Bergson that I've been told about by this person named Eli During. And while working on Bergson, this person I believe is also working on the free energy principle, like trying to kind of merge biology and philosophy through Bergson, but there's also like a dimension of physics to it. Like I think one paper that I saw from Eli During had to do with like the Einstein-Bergson debate, like this kind of stuff. And I haven't gotten super, super deep into Eli During. I was like, whoa, this is a lot at once. This is very new. So I haven't liked them to get all the way through it because it's like very, very, very heavy Bergson. And most of my Bergson has been through Deleuze mostly, I think. Um, so yeah, that's another dimension. Now, the newest dimension of biology and philosophy is the most speculative and the most insane. Because this is the newest thing. This is what I'm thinking about very recently. Apparently in Aristotle, according to Eugene Thacker's book, After Life, there's, there's the being-beings distinction that exists. And I think that the Derridian kind of Heideggerian theology stuff, the, the critique of ontotheology, all that kind of plays with that. Um, but then there's also the, the life and the living distinction or the, the creator and the creature distinction that's talked about. And so he kind of focuses on a lot on this person named Pseudo Dionysius. And then he, later on, he talks about like Don Scotus a bit and he brings in Walter Spinoza and he talks about the loves in the book. I'm still getting through this book. I'm still going through my notes and like writing summaries and like really getting to the bottom of like what's being said here, what's interesting here. But what kind of gets my eye is the thought that maybe the philosophy of biology that's being discussed in that book somehow relates to biopolitics. I don't know. But this takes me back to like a different thread. I have to jump somewhere else before I can finish this thought. I spent time with Fanon a little bit in class that first semester. Um, I tried to make sense of the, like the French Kojevian like master slave dialectic thing with like Fanon. And so I was told to read like the introduction to um, white, like I think it's white masks, black skin or something. And just the idea, I don't know, I, I kind of looked into more Fanon over time as a result of like that encounter. And I bumped into this idea that like 
that I think I can attribute to Fanon that race's experience is almost a social psychosis or, or something, right? And there's this idea in Deleuze and Guattari maybe that like some mental aberrations or some aberrations are more like collective first and then individuals kind of get hit with a disorder maybe. And so like a sort of, that's one thing. I found that kind of compelling and odd. And maybe maybe that's not really in there. It's, you know, I'm drawn to Fanon to like see, am I right? Is that in there? Like, where is it? What's going on? But another dimension of Fanon that I've seen in conjunction with like um, Winters is a sort of critique of a doctrine of election or something. That's kind of what I've been calling it. Because um, this goes back to the religion thing now, I think. The idea that like colonial Christianity kind of... Um, has this idea that there's a chosen people and those that are not chosen like tempt one into becoming different, but you're already what you should be apparently. So then you have to like kind of combat that. And there, I read this paper, the secondary resource that like tried to go through Fanon's work to like see what he thought about this. Um, and so there's like this, this doctrine of certain people are elected and others are damned, right? And so like when, when Fanon writes like the wretched of the earth or like the damned of the earth, I wonder if it's like the damned in that kind of context. And then it transitions from being certain Christians are elect and the natives or, or like the indigenous and others are are not, are like damned. It goes from that to the scientific construction of race of sorts, or like the naturalization of stuff. And so what I'm very curious about with this sort of phenon angle of like the, of the doctrine of choice or like certain people being chosen, made people and others remaining some kind of animal um, is the way that Aristotle was used to justify like early Spanish Catholic engagements with the indigenous in the new world. Cause something that I paid attention to towards the end of my time in the anthropology department was the indigenous critique. Like I was, I was given Don Graber's book, uh, the Dawn of everything. And in that book, he kind of talks about how like when the Jesuits first came in contact with the Iroquois, they were like, why aren't the fathers taking care of like commanding their children? Like what is going on? They, they were so, confused by the like the, the different social organization and they just thought they were like heretics they thought that they were you know like sinners or whatever and they're like this needs to be destroyed this needs to be gotten rid of right instead of it being a sort of maybe syncretic or hybrid experience or things kind of changing and they're being becoming on both sides instead it was what i imagine Fanon was kind of saying about them saying we have a certain doctrine that we think is proper and we think that these people need to be maybe converted or maybe, i don't know that kind of encounter is kind of what I think about with this. And then, so I, I say Aristotle in particular, there is this, I think it's like the debates in Valuoid or something. I, I recently just like thumbed through a book on this where there is a theologian who was like, I think like an expert on Aristotle. I think, I think there was like a debate between two, two Dominicans and one, like this theologian in a conference, basically try to use Aristotle's doctrine of natural slavery and apply it to all like the indigenous people and stuff. And so there's this question of like, in the construction of early empire, there are extra scriptural things that are added by theologians and are part of like a theological system. Um, and I, I kind of wonder about like where that goes and how that's associated with this doctrine of choice thing. Um, I ended up finding out about this because I was reading about a constitutional law case where, um, it was, it was about like indigenous land or indigenous sovereignty or whatever. And basically someone, a justice, I think it was Justice Marshall or something, made recourse to things that go back to that debate and basically said, we're gonna side with the idea of like the Christians, the Christians are chosen and they are supposed to take this land or whatever. It's, it's like, 
there's like in constitutional tradition like a pointer to these theological like developments that are again it's not just purely theological there's like things that aren't just scripture but are seen as influential and legitimate by the people laying down the regulations at the time or like the creating the new status quo yeah i think that's I think that's the idea it's like uh oh okay so now i'm gonna jump i'm gonna jump to something else so i grew up in mississippi this is about religion again but it's also supposed to relate back to the phenomenon stuff in the end have you heard of like the rapture stories have you seen like that movie with, like nick cage yeah yeah there's some wild stuff I've, I've i've actually worked with some really interesting clients who have been kind of traumatized by all that stuff so there's this youtube channel that i like a lot um religion for breakfast does great religious scholarship and this person released a video more or less saying that that is an artifact of people who are in control of like publishing like biblical like read like reference material they added that story kind of in like it and like now it's kind of like much more popular like like the revelation like that that reading of revelations and the rapture and everything is like a, an american culturally produced thing is what i've heard and yeah, I, if I'm not mistaken, there was a study Bible called the Schofield Bible. That Reference sounds correct. I think it's that study one, yeah. Bible, which which kind of brought in that kind of I think it's called dispensationalist dispensational yeah, yeah, yeah. theology into it. It's wild, yeah. But it yeah, is an yeah. American phenomenon. So I read the Left Behind books when I was like nine years old. So when I watched that video, I was like, "Whoa, wait, that's so insane." But like I think the I think the rapture theology is another great example of like the doctrine of choice of sorts. It's like there's some people who have been chosen and they literally fly away, and then there's warfare that descends upon the damned. Like that really sounds like the description of kind of like my reading of Fanon theologically, which again is very nation and I've only looked at like one thing and these are like just very very loose musings, right? But that almost sounds like a almost direct like projection of what I think, phenomenally think theologically sort of, or quasi-theologically like is going on in colonality. That like certain people are elected and like they get luxuries and then other people are damned and they get slowly constrained and destroyed by the system. Like I wrote a lot about like slow violence and stuff too. Like there are, in, there are certain zones of like housing where it's like quite polluted. Um, and it's just like, it's kind of matched to socioeconomic things or like I, uh, as part of the field trip for an anthropology class, we went to a nonprofit and there was this presentation about how there is zones in the city of Boston that are like very, very, very hot artificially. Um, like there's this place named Chelsea. It's like a very, very poor kind of neighborhood. And I think it's air pollution is also like so bad from being at the airport that people's rates of getting like lung disease or lung cancer is like 500 times higher than people just a few miles down the street. It's like there's these concentrated zones of like just like, disorder and violence that have been concentrated by like regulative practices over time that attack those that one could argue that are biopolitically slash necropolitically like marked for death or something or marked for harm. Um, well, wow, so, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, the rapture seems like a almost literal instantiation of this notion of a sort of divine war, but it's like instead of the war happening all at once, it's slowly distributed. It's like there's a slow antagonism. So Keanu, I, I know one of the questions I wanted to kind of ask you, if you can go there, just maybe speaking personally, but obviously how it gets connected to all this phenomenal like research and thinking that you do, do you have a sense of like 
what the divine is? Do, do you think about the God question? Is it radically open for you? Is it is it connected to any kind of particular tradition? I'm always just curious where people are on that question. Yeah. So I've been looking at the Pseudo-Dionysius stuff in more depth. And I found a really, really interesting like PhD thesis from I think like the University of Ohio or something. But it's about this notion of like transformational mysticism is what they call it. But it's more or less apophantic theology mixed with Jewish mysticism is what this stuff is. And it's thought that this influenced a lot of Eastern Orthodox stuff and a lot of Eastern Orthodox kind of theology over time. And there is this one, like, yeah, I've been looking at heterodox Christianity for a little bit at this point. Like I've, I've, I was like reading about Eckhart, I was reading like Marguerite Poirette, uh, just things that are kind of associated with the apophantic or like negative theological kind of bend. I've been looking at like Henry Corbin and his thoughts about apophantic stuff, which I all saw through like the James Hillman readings that I've kind of been doing. The apophantic stuff is interesting. It seems like the way that the divine is treated in the apophantic stuff is very, very different. Like, I don't know, to be very like vulgar, paint the picture like is clear, like a little too concretely. It's like, I think I have two notions of the divine that exist. There's one that I, that I kind of think is interesting and there's one that I think is not interesting. The one that I think is not interesting is the idea of there being like a Santa Claus type judge that like is a plane of consistency or like all knowledge about you is arranged and then you get judged by it. I don't really like that as much. What I find interesting is this notion of like there being a generative void. It's like a it's like a nothingness, but like somehow things come out of it, like and like get generated, right? So it's like usia. It's like beyond being. It's like that makes things. And it's and so in pseudo Dionysius, there's this kind of reading of these kinds of concepts, this kind of transformational mysticism kind of reading, where like the divine comes into the and com comes into the world imminently through like ecstatic ruptures and so i think that like the the god of judgment and the god of like punishment and stuff like that like the kind of foucault like discipline and punish vibes like i think that matches that kind of notion of god it's like that entire apparatus like as a form of like someone processing the norm and like the regulation that i think they have to go through like i think there's this certain notion of like a judgmental cognitive force that you can like maybe construct or encounter, which is like the, the feeling of guilt that is constitutive to maybe the system we live in. Um, like I find Walter Benjamin's notion of capitalism as religion kind of fascinating because I've been looking at Agamben's engagements with Benjamin a bit. And I, yeah, I think, I, I don't think the world's been secularized fully, right? Like, I do think there is still like a very important dimension to like how the secret works and what's going on in the world. Um, and so I've been fascinated in apophantic stuff. I think maybe that has a notion of the divine that I don't immediately reject when I see it. I guess I'm curious about it. I'm in the early phases of learning about it. Um, I'm actually gonna like explore an Eastern, an Eastern Orthodox liturgy today, maybe I think. Like I just looked into it and found out there's one here in Boston. I'm like, ah, maybe I'll go see what that's like. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. Because you know, it might be different. Um, yeah, I guess I have like, yeah. So I mean, like, not with the Foucauldian kind of knowledge power formulation. I feel like that's what pseudo Dionysius might think of as cataphantic theology, right? Like, there's something that's known, it's generated, right? The being just beings thing. It's like cataphantic stuff is beings, maybe. Whereas 
with the apophantic as being it's like usia so you know like instrumental knowledge is sort of like wrapped up with knowledge power it's an external thing it's your relation to a certain kind of like part of the world but it seems like the ultimate feedback of being bound up with a lot of external things ends up being the system itself gaining more joy or canadis and you just kind of wither away whereas i view the like apophantic and inner stuff as being more like rejuvenating and like one has more like internal ecstatic kind of eruption stuff. Like I like to meditate a lot, but I meditate like instead of thinking that I'm like a little mini Buddha, I think I'm like a mini Plotinus or something. Like I don't know. Right. Like like I, I'm curious about like the mixture of like Merkava or chariot Jewish mysticism and as it matures over time. And then how like the like different theological or like doctrinal formulations of Christianity over the first couple hundred years form and then how Hellenistic philosophy is also very important all that you guys know like Proclus and Amicus and things like this like I'm, I'm curious about how all of these things come together around Pseudo-Dionysius and stuff and I feel like that is it's been one of the first times that I have like ended up seeing people like interpret the Bible and stuff and like I like read it and I go that actually kind of makes sense like in the transformational mysticism uh like PhD thing I was looking at there is this reading of revelations that they gave, right? Because we talked about the rapture thing. Um, there's a reading of revelations that says, like, instead of the violence being something to come, it's like there's this lamb that's already slain. Right? And the lamb that's already slain is just Jesus having died on the cross or something, right? And it's like, there is no divine war to descend. It's like, no, it's a reveal of the violence that's already been sown. And like, it's supposed to be a message about like humility and grace or something, right? It's like, and yet we have this American reading that's like, very, very violent, very warfare, very like demons are gonna come and fight. Like I watched this American Dad TV show when I was younger, and there's there's like a two-part episode series about the rapture, and like it's like this imagery of them like having sawed-off shotguns shooting demons out of the sky. Like, it's crazy. And I think the apophantic reading just isn't like that. It has a it kind of sees Jesus as more of like almost a pointer to like the inward world or something instead of the like outer world. Like I don't know, like it seems seems different from the stuff I was exposed to. I'm curious about it, but I don't know if I can say that I'm like set on anything yet. I'm exploring. Sure. I totally get that. All right, man. Well, I know I'm going to have to hop off, but yeah. dude, it has been great connecting with you. I think you have a beautiful and impressive mind. I, I love following you. And uh, maybe my one challenge to you is to change your name on Twitter to mini Plotinus. That would be <laughs> super interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess it'd be mini pseudo-Dionysus at this point. I think that's where I've honed in on more. Got it. Maybe, yeah, may maybe you could do that. Yeah, I actually tried changing my name. It wouldn't let me. I think I have to buy the, the, the $8 version of Twitter. To do oh, that. man, don't worry about that then. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man, until next time. Oh, right, yeah.